Welcome. As always, before I jump in and start babbling on, I have to put my pitch in to be self-sustaining as an entity and just remind you that everything I do is by donation only. There's no charge. As a Buddhist pastor, everything I offer is supported by donations through Venmo at Dharma Punks with an XNYC or the PayPal site on the Dharma Punks NYC website or the podcast site. And there's a Patreon as well, available on the dharmapunksnyc.com site. Piece of good news, uh, every New Year's Eve before the pandemic, we would offer an in-person small event that used to be at Maha Rose. Well, this year it'll be at Center Yoga. That will be New Year's Eve. We're going to have uh, an optional yoga class and there will be a probably starting around 10 30 meditation then a dharma talk then an intention setting ceremony and it's my goal to uh for those who don't live in the new york area if it's at all feasible to stream the event via zoom if we can get a wi-fi signal at the yoga center but if you're in new york and you'd like a quiet sober new year's eve gathering with some meditation and some of me rambling on about some subject well you are more than invited to join us so tonight i'm actually going to be talking about social discomfort and anxiety the distress of the expectation of interpersonal events, social discomfort and anxiety is for me a worthwhile topic to address. Social discomfort and anxiety is an intense, generally recurring state of emotional stress that, as we'll see, countless individuals experience in situations where they are subject the attention or scrutiny or assessment or evaluation by other people. Any situation where we feel will be the center of attention can incite a degree of discomfort or anxiety. And we'll talk about why this is the case. Situations where you have to meet people for the first time, being in a room full of strangers or going to large social gatherings where certain kinds of social etiquette is to be expected, job interviews, public speaking or performing, uh, work evaluations, situations where small talk is required, dating, all these and more are notorious for creating underlying discomfort. Anticipating tense interactions or negative assessment can activate a distressing array of physical symptoms such as, well, you know, restlessness, being unable to focus, sweating, trembling, uh, difficulties swallowing, racing heartbeats, dizziness, distorted perceptions, and most common, quickly firing intrusive self-referential thoughts, like, what's the matter with me? Why do I feel this way? Why can't I relax? Everybody's looking at me. I'm going to make a fool of myself, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you can tell by how quickly I fired those off that I am no uh, stranger in my life to the experience of social anxiety. 
I know people who experience social anxiety when they have to eat in front of others, or some people have reported when they have to use public restrooms and so on and so forth. So it's extremely common and given such distressing symptoms of the restlessness, the sweating, the trembling, the racing heart, the dizziness, the intrusive, you know, plethora of self-conscious ideations, any situation where one feels observed or subject to another person's possible disapproval can lead to a host of maladaptive tendencies. People will very frequently, uh, at the, through the course of their lives, practice what's called avoidance coping, which is navigating around situations where small talk is to be expected or unfamiliar groups or where you'll be possibly in the presence of people where there might be some small degree of conflict. And while people believe that avoidance coping is harmless, it actually has uh, pretty maladaptive um, uh, implications. Certainly, not only does it make life smaller and less growth-oriented, but it makes us overall feel more vulnerable and incapable uh, of working through conflict and difficulties with others. Conflict avoidance is pretty rampant uh, as a result of social anxiety and social discomfort. Uh, classic examples of conflict avoidance might be as simple as uh, going along with what somebody who's very loud and bullying says, even if we disagree. Or it can be mild, like at the end of a date that you're on, where you're not really feeling enthusiastic about reconnecting with the person. And yet when the individual at the end of the day, it says, well, that was fun. Uh, Want to do it this again on Friday. Uh, you find or one finds oneself agreeing automatically simply to avoid the awkwardness that might arise in uh, truthfully responding, it was nice to meet you, but I don't think this is right for me, etc. So avoiding any kind of awkwardness or any kind of conflict can lead to failing to set boundaries in life with work colleagues, with family members, even with friends who put us in situations that we don't feel particularly comfortable in. So why is it that we have such, and we'll talk about the statistics in a little while, but why is it that social anxiety and awkwardness is such a um, common feature in our species? Well, the answer is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, social bonding the ability to connect with others lies at the very core of our species' survival. Whereas other species can fly away from danger or can burrow hole, holes or can run very fast or have shells and or can fight very well. We have really none of those. <laughs> 
we're a species that pretty much almost has our organs <laughs> available right on the outside with very thin layers of muscle and skin protecting us. We're not particularly fast runners. We can't fly. We don't even swim uh, with any degree of proficiency. So pretty much our survival as a species came down to our ability to bond, as in safety in numbers, the fact that we could connect with others into small groups, protect ourselves from predators and from harsh environments. Um, so cooperation was essential. It was how we survived the harsh environments that our ancestors faced. And as a result, you can probably guess this, that any failure to detect disapproval of other by others of us, any failure to overlook that other people were unhappy with us could result in terrible outcomes. Because if we were banished from our clan or our tribe throughout much of human history, it was essentially we would be sentenced to die. We would experience violence at the hand of other clans or predators, or we would freeze to death or starve to death. So the single most salient ability in our ancestors was the ability to constantly maintain good tribal bonds. And the way we would do that was to constantly monitor the facial expressions of other people to get a sense of where we stood with them. So we developed a capacity to subconsciously scan the facial expressions in, in fractions of a, section, a second before we're consciously aware of the process. And what we do is we use the fast circuits of the amygdala and other regions of the fusiform gyrus, which are very fast and a circuit that also stems through the PAG and the, and the anterior, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. And uh, we are constantly, before we're even aware of it, looking at other people's nonverbal cues, their facial expressions, their body language, the tone of their voice, whether they're making eye contact, whether they're orienting towards us. And if we detect something that feels unexpected, it doesn't even have to be dangerous expression, just unexpected. The slightest shift in the micro expression of another human being can result in an autonomic shift from relaxed state to sympathetic arousal. And you can see this in fMRI scans when you show people images of people smiling. There's very little amygdala activation, but then you show someone a picture of someone frowning or even sometimes with a neutral expression. And very quickly, the amygdala will light up and will light up in a fraction of a section, second before people are consciously aware of it. So looks of confusion, surprise, momentary distraction can be misread as disapproval. Uh, and the amygdala lights up and it sends forward projecting to the frontal lobe uh, alerts. And then the frontal lobe will add a story and a, an impulsive reaction to that stimuli. 
essentially to put it in another way a simpler way of saying is that evolution ensured that we are a naturally socially anxious species we are by nature socially anxious it's been shown that we are neurally predisposed to misconstrue ambiguous facial expressions from others that's ambiguous they don't really mean anything but we are predisposed to misconstrue ambiguous facial expressions as dangerous if we don't know what a facial expression means we won't be quizzical the amygdala will light up and depending upon a lot of factors like for instance the environment we're in we're very likely in a social setting to have someone with a quizzical or blank stare to be construed as judgmental conflictual and that will make social situations by and large difficult to manage for many people who spend their infancy with emotionally distant caregivers may have a lasting traumatic association when they see a blank facial expression on others because of their childhood the emotionless or distant or neglectful parent in their present when they experience someone who's not smiling or warmly greeting them just the neutral expression in others can activate a amygdala response and that can turn into uh an anxious predisposition or state so even anticipating social rejection has been shown can create distress similar to physical pain if you'd like to look at the work of famous neuropsychologists like Naomi Eisenberger and Matthew Lieberman and John Cacioppo and Gary Bernson and so many others but the experience or the anticipation of rejection activates this crucial region in the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and in the insula that highlight the physical discomfort and the uh the anticipation and anxiety about the what's going on here the a sense of vulnerability and it's no worth noting that this region the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex has the largest array of opioid receptors in the brain and so when we anticipate the possibility of social rejection the brain's processing of natural endorphins or opioids goes down and the body literally feels less comfortable and on top of it the cingulate focuses attention to the discomfort and then on top of that the anticipation or actual social rejection diminishes serotonin signaling in the nucleus accumbens, accumbens. so we become prone to mood plummets and because in our evolution any kind of possible social rejection was a threat it activates very fast ruminating self-oriented fear-based thoughts so overall what happens is the body feels terrible we become prone to mood plummets 
the sympathetic nervous system is activated. We start breathing faster. We tremble and we become plagued with self-conscious. I'm doing something wrong. People don't like me. I'm, I'm, uh, people can see right through me, blah, 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 blah. And the whole experience becomes a miserable mess. Hopefully with some of you, this will sound familiar or not hopefully, but I hope that I'm absolutely, I'm capturing what the experience is in a way that both normalizes it, explains it, but also uh, makes it something that we can empathize with or understand. So in normal times, when we're engaged in social settings on a daily basis, times before the pandemic, the amygdala would experience during the commute to work or in an office or in a school setting or on a busy street or in a luncheon, a luncheonette or where people are going to luncheonettes. I don't know where that came from, but a restaurant. We experience countless faces with ambiguous expressions. And so over time, the amygdala begins to habituate to these ambiguous cues. For example, the loss of eye contact or people not responding immediately or people looking surprised by something we say. If you do that every, every, every day where there's going to be some ambiguous look from somebody on a subway or in your office, then over time, the amygdala uh, stops firing or signaling the same degree of alert and also the frontal lobe begins to interpret those alert signals as non-important. So in other words, if we have a lot of ongoing interpersonal interactions, you're going to over time habituate. If you eventually spend your life in a dangerous setting, even where there's bombs going off, eventually, to a certain degree, your amygdala, your frontal lobes, the alert detection systems in the PAG and other regions of the brain will, to a certain degree, become familiar. And that's what happens in most normal daily life. But what happens during long durations of withdrawal, like in a pandemic? Or like when people are in incarceration and solitary confinement. Well, over time, the lack of witnessing unpredictable nonverbal cues and ambiguous facial expressions and being around people where small talk or social etiquette is expected to some degree, when we remove ourselves from social interaction, once again, we return to this very natural state of social anxiety. Our ancestors were very, very, very socially anxious, but they were lucky in the sense that most of our anxious our ancestors would only know six to 10 people in their lifespan. So they had a small array of people to habituate to. Our ancestors didn't have to go to job evaluations. Our ancestors didn't have to go to large social gatherings, you know, or weekend uh, throwdowns at a bar or go to holiday parties. They might gather once in a great while, to meet with related clans, but that was hardly 
uh, a regular occurrence. And so our ancestors uh, and really the human species up until very recently were ongoingly social anxious all of the time, always monitoring the unfamiliar expressions of and any new novel situation would be very 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 challenging it's only in a, the blink of an evolutionary moment where human beings have migrated to larger urban settings and have uh, been in greater proximity with each other that we've had to learn to essentially habituate to ongoing social interactions. But if you remove the habituation over time, we revert to a very naturally anxious state. And on top of that, the basal lateral amygdala, which is the part of the amygdala that learns what to be frightened of. Yes, there's a part of the brain that learns what or what we consider to be dangerous, I should say. Not really fear, but danger. Anyway, uh, what is avoided or not encountered over time becomes scarier. So, for example, if you fall off a bike and avoid getting on your bike for a few weeks after you have that accident, when you get back on a bike, you're going to be more anxious than if you just hopped back on right after the, the uh, accident. Anything we avoid doing the basal lateral amygdala begins to associate with danger so during the pandemic we had to practice social distancing and so in countless in basically everyone's brain um the avoidance began to be interpreted as being around other people carried a certain degree of danger and now that we are increasingly removing ourselves from social distancing, being around others can activate uh, social anxiety to the degree that the World Health Organization has announced that during the pandemic, anxiety disorders increased by 25% across all ages. So in other words, if the numbers are correct, the 15% that had diagnosable anxiety disorders before the pandemic were probably up to 35 or 40% now with anxiety. And then you add on top of it, depressive disorders, and you probably can realistically conclude that at least half of the population is really, really struggling right now with social anxiety or depression. And uh, it's most catastrophic for young brains. Why is that? Well, the brain is what's called experience expectant. We expect to learn uh, develop different developmental capacities at different ages. So from the age of nine months to two years, we expect to learn about primary attachments. From two to three, we expect to learn about secondary attachments, i.e. the child turns to the father for bonding. And starting around age five or six through age 12, certainly and on, 
the brain expects to learn about peer dynamics, how to build new friendships, how to tolerate social stress, how to uh, navigate through and understand what certain expressions mean, how to read and understand cynicism and jokes, how to, um, what is acceptable versus unacceptable behavior. Uh, what happens if you utterly deprive someone who's eight or nine of engaging with other people? Well, the social isolation is going to be associated with then core shame. Even though you can explain to a child that the sudden di disappearance of people their age or friends is not their fault, is due to a pandemic, but the brain interprets avoidance of uh, by others as something is wrong with me. And that core shame is one of the unfortunate hallmarks that we're seeing a veritable tsunami of anxiety disorders that as a and especially due to childhood isolation but all of us any of us who experienced any degree of neglect or abandonment in childhood the pandemic with all the social distancing can reactivate core shame this feeling that i'm unlovable people don't want to be around me, there's something wrong with me. And eventually, over time, uh, we'll struggle more, we will uh, become less satisfied with ourselves. we will, um, it'll exaggerate maladaptive defensive strategies, people with uh, core shame, find it very difficult to express themselves confidently. They struggle with being confident in their creative life and so on and so forth. So uh, there's, there's no end to the ramifications of the pandemic, which we will be living with and uh, uh having to deal with for years and years to come but for the whole population when we do experience social discomfort there's certain kind of maladaptive strategies that make it worse a classic example is gadget dependence people will try to mitigate their social anxiety by looking at iPhones or uh, smartphones as a way to remove the eye contact, remove the need to read other people's facial expressions, remove the need to engage in small talk. And all gadget dependence does is not only um, worsen the addictiveness of smartphones, which are in and of themselves very addictive because of the uh, sec the forward projecting secretion of dopamine from the ventral tegmental, which lights up when a small area has bright moving colors. So uh, I, smartphones are addictive in and of themselves. But then when you add on top of it a reliance to get through social situations, uh, it's, it's remarkable how dependent people become on gadgets. I was, I, I had the, the most, um, 
commonplace, almost rote experience at a restaurant the other day where I was sitting and two people clearly came and sat down and it looked like they were going to, they were looking forward to seeing each other and they spent the entire meal not looking up at themselves, at their partner, at the waiter, actually the waitress, at their environment. They were just spent the entire time avoiding the experience on the phone as a way to mitigate the even the slightest degree of anxiety that they were experiencing. Um, Self-medicating. When people experience social awkwardness or anxiety, there's a tendency to reach for alcohol because in um, the liver's processing of alcohol to acetate, it produces acetylaldenate. I can't remember the name of it, but it it's a, a substance that essentially passes through the blood-brain barrier and activates the GABA receptors, which makes us feel a little less anxious, less inhibited. We feel less self-conscious. And of course, in the short term, people who drink a glass of wine might uh, feel less socially anxious. But if you rely on that very quickly, uh, of course, you're going to need the brain habituates to a small level of of alcohol and requires greater and greater and greater amounts to get the same anxiolytic or anxiety reducing effects. So very quickly, what brings on a little relief turns into a nightmare of substance dependence. Some people will, when they're socially anxious, uh, turn to eating because eating uh triggers the secretion of dopamine which helps us with our 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 confidence our sense of power but then of course when people spend a party uh eating uh the entire time to have a small amount of comfort then the next day very often they feel shame and it's not a way to manage social anxiety i think we'll all agree so what are the ways to manage and address social awkwardness and anxiety. Well, of course, in the aftermath of a pandemic, the most important practice is incremental acclimatizing exposure. Start by connecting only in situations that are have smaller groups or with people that you know are friendly. So you can begin to reacclimate the amygdala and the midbrain and the hypothalamus and uh, the entire and the fuse the entire neuroceptive process we can begin to habituate back and great gain a greater tolerance to ambiguous facial expressions and having to monitor a wide circle of people it takes time so socialize at your comfort level don't try to push yourself to Uh, Go to a large wedding first thing. If you have to do that, spend some time going to, you know, smaller gatherings, uh, even smaller coffee shops or things. Just begin to acclimate being around people. Disclosure. It's difficult to acknowledge one feels nervous or socially anxious, but it makes it worse not to disclose it. The fastest way to 
diminish anxiety is to acknowledge to someone that we feel anxious. Locke and Colligan had a study in 1986 that the less we're willing to express our internal anxiety or discomfort, the worse the anxiety becomes. So even though it might feel awkward, although I must admit in my life of acknowledging the times where I felt socially anxious, I've never had one person ever shame me for it. Sometimes people will be like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm not anxious. That's the most unwelcome response. But most people go, oh, yeah, I don't feel too <laughs> comfortable here either. Or, oh, I know what that feels like. Yeah, that that's really hard. Let me, you know, if you just want to talk, let's talk. So um, self-disclosure releases us from focusing especially on our inner thoughts, our intrusive self-referential ideations, and allows us to once again connect with a friendly face. There was a study by Jorman and Johnson in 2008 that showed just how much alleviation and somatic relief we get from acknowledging that we feel anxious. Shifting the spotlight of attention which means trying not to uh, allow the brain to use its bottom-up danger-seeking, which is when we allow the our attention to naturally wander, focus on one person that's friendly, or if not, find an external, not a phone, but an external object that's soothing, a window, a plant, a pet, a or something, and just allow your gaze to rest on it and then move to another object. But don't, if we allow the mind to just, the attention to go wherever it wants, if we're in a social setting and we have any predilection towards anxiety, what it's going to do is your right singlet is going to find the least friendly face <laughs> and you're going to zoom in on it. So you want to steer your attention towards that which is reliably, or at least uh, less triggering. Uh, it's worth while self-soothing, which means relax the body, so extend the out breaths, engages the parasympathetic nervous system, soften the belly, full exhalations, um, sometimes just literally standing, putting like, you know, subtly putting a hand near the vagal nerve can actually down-regulate the autonomic nervous system. Put the phone away. Uh, disengaging from uh, the world only makes the anxiety worse. You'll find that if you return to awareness of your environments, but find someone or something to rest your attention on, you'll be far less anxious and you'll be training your amygdala over time to be more tolerant and familiar once again with the challenges of interpersonal life. Seek one-on-ones with people that are friendly. It's easier to develop comfort with one individual than it is with groups. And most of all, just be realistic about our capabilities. Feel permitted to leave when you need to leave. Don't push oneself ever to stay longer than what is comfortable. I developed a mastery of, I like to say, a mastery of 
making myself seen by people at a party that I want to be seen and leaving very quickly. So people think that I was there for hours, but I generally only stay for a half an hour if I'm when I've ever gone to any large social gathering. I generally will just stop by, smile, say something quick, uh, have a nice or make uh, express something to someone, then another, then another, then I slip out. So because I don't really find much to be gained from large social gatherings outside of spiritual gatherings, like our New Year's Eve event, I'm putting in a a pitch for it. So anyway, that's tonight's talk on a little bit about social awkwardness and social anxiety, why the pandemic has made it worse, why we are naturally a socially anxious species, and what to do about it. And now what we're going to do is we're going to both practice self-soothing and we'll also practice priming the amygdala using our imaginal imaginative qualities to actually prepare if we have to go into any kind of interpersonal gathering in the future. So thanks for listening. And you are now invited to find a very uh, comfortable seated position. And I would like to encourage you to look away from the screen as you do not need to look at me while we're meditating. In fact, that would be a very bad idea. So allow yourself to reorient away from the screen so that you do not see any of the images of people Allow yourself to find a comfortable spot. Closing the eyes. Some people do like to meditate with their eyes open. And if that's the case, just look down. Don't, don't look in a way that activates the exteroceptive functions of the brain, which is essentially searching your external environment for information. What we want to practice in meditation is called interoception, which is we search our internal experience, the sensations of the body that other people are not uh, capable of seeing in us. And that requires essentially closing the eyes or looking down in such a way that we are not distracted by the world around us. And so for a soothing practice, what we want to do is find a place to land our attention in the body, a set of sensations that are soothing or comfortable to bear in mind. Part of the Buddha's jhana practice or practice of quieting and soothing the mind was to find sensations in the body that 
were comfortable, where we could spread ease from. Now that can be the sensation of breathing. And breathing is an excellent choice because once you become aware of breathing, you can subtly influence it, extending the length of the out-breaths to make yourself even more relaxed. But it doesn't have to be breathing. You might rest your attention on your eyes if they feel settled. You might want to rest it on the heart center. In different meditations, I've rested my attention on the palms of my hands, the belly. the center of the forehead, the back of the neck. Wherever right now there's any sense of ease in your body. And if the ease is not very apparent, see if you could just find the least uncomfortable part and slowly breathe into that area and just start to relax it. And so for those of you that do want to work with the breath, find the area in the belly or the abdomen that you first become aware of your inhalation, very often a sense of expansion. And then as you feel yourself breathing in, allow your attention to move up the body to find the energy of inhaling as it moves up from the belly to the heart center, the chest, And then as you release the breath and start to exhale, just follow the energy moving down the front of your body. A sense of letting go. The energy moving from the chest down back to the belly. So it's a circular or it's a movement like waves. The inhalation is like the wave coming into the shore, stretching all the way up close to us where we're standing on the sand. And then the exhalation is like the waves retreating back to the ocean. And so just like you would listen to the sound of the waves on a beach, In your meditation, just ride the sensation of the warmth and attention that the inhalation brings and the energy moving up the body. And then riding back out with the wave as the exhalation retreats down, relaxes and releases. 
You can imagine like your attention is a boat moving with the tide. In and out. And while we sit practicing with whatever sensation in the body that you'd like to return to and use your attention to soften. Every time your mind slips away, just note whatever has, whatever thought or memory or plan or fantasy or reminiscence or has caught your attention and just make a promise to it that when your meditation is done that you'll offer it all the attention it needs. Most of the time it's just the frontal lobe just doesn't know what to make of meditation and it just will throw anything to any speculative thought to grab our attention. And if you promise it, you'll return to it. It just evaporates because it's just a distraction. It's not really anything of import. But we're not pushing away anything. We're just welcoming it and saying we'll return to it later. And the practice is just to, without any judgment or frustration, continue coming back again and again and again to your anchor. That set of sensations in your body that you're resting your attention on.
So at this point, just as a practice, allow your imagination to fashion an internal representation of a social event that might be challenging for you. And for everybody, this will be a different. For some of us, it might be being out on a date or meeting strangers at a social gathering or being out in a crowd of people or being stuck in a subway car between stations or uh, it could be a job evaluation or being stuck in a work setting where we're with people that are uh, have not always been safe or friendly. It could be a family gathering. It could be a situation where we have to talk in public or perform in some way in public. See if there's any setting where you've avoided in the past because you find a kind of situation to be challenging. And what we're going to work on is just tools to deactivate the stress. So if you have any situation where you that pops to mind, or at least in the past has activated some degree of discomfort, see if you can create a mental representation of it. Or if not, just allow the title label of the event itself to resonate in your mind. It is helpful, though, if you can conjure up some kind of representation, image, or sense of what it would be like to be in this challenging setting so that you can feel even slightly some of the somatic or emotional experiences that um, occur. So very commonly, if we're in a social gathering that's uncomfortable, we find ourselves feeling overwhelmed, especially by the faces of others, the people, especially that we anticipate some kind of rejection or possibility of appraisal or criticism, whether it's a work setting or a social setting or a family setting. You might visualize first the uncomfortable look of other people staring at us. And so the first thing what we'd like to do is just release any tension in your belly, soften your belly, 
And just while you hold the image in mind, just have a nice in-breath and then a long exhalation. And just see if you can gently extend your belly so that it's not held too tight. And then in this situation, I'd like you to insert a face of someone who might be there who is not unfriendly or judgmental, but who is more welcoming, someone in the past you associate with a degree of comfort. And what I invite you to do is in this challenging setting, visualize yourself resting your attention on this welcoming face. And then imagine also in this setting, there's a window or a plant or a piece of art or an animal. And just allow your attention to move from the friendly face to the neutral object, back and forth, overlooking the faces of people that are more challenging. And while you do this, remind yourself that statistically 50% of us regularly experience some degree of anxiety, especially in social settings. So one out of every two people in this setting you visualized is not feeling that comfortable either. So there's nothing unusual about the way you feel. Long exhalations, trying to soften the belly. And then try to notice whatever facial expression you have on and just see if without forcing it, you can cultivate a relaxed, neutral facial expression. Once again, orienting your attention towards the friendly face or the neutral object. You'd only have to look at a unfriendly face if they directly addressed you, and then you could, even in responding, look back to the friendly or people whose expressions were more welcoming. And then imagine 
at any point looking at your way out and just reminding yourself that you don't have to stay any place any longer than than is feasible and just imagine comfortably at the end saying goodbye to anyone who you would like to and then leaving the setting keeping your belly relaxed your exhalations long your shoulders dropped neutral expression And with that, you're welcome to open your eyes.